10, 9, ignition sequence start, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. The Treehouse of Liberty podcast is hosted by Jason Fornwald and comes to you from the bright red corner of the bright blue state of Maryland. Hello once again, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome into another episode of the Treehouse of Liberty podcast. I am your host, Jason Fornwald, and thank you so much for deciding to join me once again. I really enjoyed doing these interviews the last couple of weeks. Um, we had Claymore on two weeks ago, who was absolutely outstanding, one of my favorite people, an outstanding constitutionalist. Um, and then we got to talk to Delegate S. Marshall Wilson of the West Virginia State Legislature last week, and that was just out of this world. I mean, it really was, um, you know, to be able to talk to somebody who, in his own right, is not only an outstanding constitutionalist, but such a, a phenomenally interesting person, uh, and somebody who is on the front lines of the response to this virus right now. I decided to continue that this week. Um, I have a good friend, Rich Rowland, who I actually used to uh, work for and work with when I sold cars. Rich actually is uh, the general sales manager of a dealership in my area. And so far over and above that, Rich has taught me a lot about life in general, um, the way he views the foundation of our country, um, the things that are important, how much the national debt actually means to uh, our response to COVID-19 and, and many other things. Uh, and so I'm going to continue the interviews this week. Uh, I hope you'll enjoy getting to listen to Rich. I certainly enjoyed talking to him. Uh, kick back, relax. You don't even have to take your shoes off to put your feet up on the table here in the Treehouse of Liberty. And now I'd like to welcome in a good friend and a man who is on the front lines right now providing an essential service. Um, he's a Navy veteran. He's general sales manager at what is, for my money, the premier car dealership here in Western Maryland. Man, I'm privileged to call my friend, Mr. Rich Rowland. Welcome to the show, sir. What's happening, Jay? Hey, it's another happy day in Happyville, man. Um, you and I have talked about doing a podcast together, possibly a, a YouTube channel, so I'm really excited about this, man. Um, Me too. I'm just excited I don't have to keep on typing, because I tell you what, we have these <laughs> conversations. It's always definitely better to do it you know, with, with words, not typing, because my mm -hmm. typing is not great. No doubt. That's one of the things I was going to say, too, is like when we had these conversations before, I kind of felt like we could go all day long, maybe two days, and then when it ends up in Messenger on Facebook, it's like we're writing War and Peace electronically. That's it. But um, so could you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, who you are, and what has been your role leading an essential business uh, during the pandemic? Yeah, I mean, I, of course, I work as a sales manager in a car dealership, and we were kind of surprised we were essential. We were tied into a service department, to service departments, which have been deemed essential. Of course, you know, when, when you're in the building, we were allowed to stay as well. Again, I, I had mixed feelings, no question, you know, when it came to that, because obviously I, I think this is definitely a serious, serious illness, and it's certainly, the numbers are certainly a little bit daunting, but, you know, it's been a, it's been a tough role. I mean, just, you know, people are, you know, coming in sporadically to say the least, you know, it's been a, it's been much slower, obviously, what you would expect than normal right. in our business. We need people for this to work. So, okay. you know, when people are staying home and, and certainly it's been tough, but, you know, we, we, had, we ended up eking out a pretty good month this being the end of the month. And I know you know about that, Jason, yeah. it was a good finish Excellent. for what we, for what we've done. And, 
you know, it was good, but it's, it's been challenging. There's no question about it. And, and my role has been basically as a kind of a cheerleader, keeping everybody's morale up and keeping everybody moving forward. And of course, making sure we're following the, the, the practices, the safety practices of the CDC, which I think are important. Again, very challenging in a business like ours, but I think we've done a good job. Yeah. And, and we talked about this a little bit, you know, just with each other. Um, you know, in a position like yours, you're getting in and out of customer trades, you know, yeah. and you're evaluating those. You, and I'm sorry, there's only so much you can do and stay at a safe distance from people correct. when you're in your business. Um, what kind of precautions have you taken? Like, I know when we worked together and I worked for you, I know we got some trades that were uh, interesting, to say the least. Yeah, say the least, sure. Um, you know, what precautions are you taking to protect yourself and, by extension, your family when you have to do things like that? Well, getting in any tra- any car, I mean, it can be it can be the cleanest car in the world, but, you know, if somebody's just coughed in it and, you know, any type of, you know, any type of saliva hit steering wheels, my hands touch steering wheels, I accidentally scratch my eye because my eye itched. You know, these are things that human beings do naturally. It's just don't even think about it. The normal, the normal antibodies that we have in our body to fight normal infections and normal bacteria, you know, aren't going to work against this. There's no natural immunity to COVID-19. There, there's no. It, it's a. It's like I said. It's, it's definitely in the in the mix now of being a tremendously devastating illness. But again, it, with no natural immunity, you know, one scratch of the eye, it's very contagious and it can be a problem. But what I do is typically this. I wear gloves and I change gloves every time I get in and out of any car. Good. I wear a mask all day long, which has been very challenging as well. Right. Again, you know, trying to breathe in those things. I God love the healthcare workers. I don't know how they do it. Amen. But, Amen. But I've learned how I learned how difficult that is. But of course, gloves on the hands. I take the gloves off before I get in the customer's car to protect them. I I sanitize the hands. I put gloves on. I touch their car. I come out of their car. The gloves get removed. My hands get resanitized, and then I go to my desk. It's it's just it's a process of just gloves, gloves, you know, and, and all throughout the day, just you know, gloves and resanitizing my hands, which are the things that are touching the car. And you know, like I said, you know, it's 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 certainly challenging thinking about the seat you're sitting in, thinking about you know any type of skin that might touch any surface. It's I'm not going to sit here and tell you that it's been you know a bed of roses. I mean, you're always in the back of your mind thinking. And I'm not going to also tell you that you know in, in an instance of you know, taking the gloves off or, you know, even, you know, you scratch your eye, you, you know, you, you cough, you put your hand in your mouth. I mean, and you think, yeah. God bless it. I shouldn't have done that. But, you know, you just got to put a little bit of trust in, in the man upstairs that he's taking care of you on a few isolated cases where you haven't done the perfect CDC thing and been perfect every time. If we were perfect every time, there's only one guy that was that, and I'm certainly not him. So After you at, at the end of the day, I mean, we do our best, but yeah, it's right. certainly, going through those precautions, having people literally stand six feet away from me when I'm negotiating and so talking hard. to people. It's just, it's hard, you know, people mm-hmm. naturally trying to extend hands to handshake hands. And then of course we both kind of catch ourselves and we do right. the elbow bump or we do the air high five and, yeah. and we make a joke out of it, but it's legitimately changed how human beings interact, especially in a, in a, in a business environment. So it's just been very challenging. Right. And, and knowing you a little bit, I know that, um, your priority, priorities in a lot of cases are other people. Um, that was one of the things that I really appreciated when I worked with you was that, you know, it, it, even those times that you had to get in our ass a little bit, it wasn't done to be an ass. It was done to encourage us, get us moving in the right direction, kind of figuratively slap us upside the head a little bit, you know, and, and have us yeah. look better for ourselves. 
I know. Well, I can tell you, I, I'm an upside down pyramid manager. You know, and that, what that basically is is I believe that the people that are supposedly in the managerial spots are designed to hold up the ones that are kind of running the show. I don't believe that, you know, sales, my people are there to serve me. I believe I'm there to serve them. I measure my success and what I do every day by the success of the people that work for me. If my people aren't successful, I'm not successful. It doesn't matter what I make. If my people aren't making a better quality of life for themselves and their family, that does not make me work. I, if I believe the value of a manager in any situation, be it in these trying times or non-trying times, if you are putting your people in the best position to take care of their family better than they ever could before, if, if that's what drives you, then you have all the tools to become a good leader and a good manager. If you manage with the typical pyramid structure where everybody that's supposedly you know, doing the, doing the groundwork, if you will, are holding up the managers on a position of authority and they exist to do nothing but build the bank accounts of the men that are above them. That's not how I roll. I believe that we can all get strong together. I give up strength so my people can be strong. And, and that's something that I've always taken pride in. When, when I have guys that come to me that have worked jobs that have never had their own car, never bought their own home, and they make enough money working with me as we push together and work our way through this business. If I help to get to help, if the money that they make working for me versus what they did before, gets them their first house, gets them their first car, gets them a better car, gets them a better vacation, is able to put their kids in nice in better clothes and better in, in better schools. That is the thing that gets me up in the morning and gets me going. And, and if I can't, if you're not the same type of person, then in my opinion, that should be a managerial, that should be managerial criteria 101. If the, if the success of your people is always ahead of your own, or at least for gosh sake, simultaneous with your own, then you, don't, then you don't belong in the job if you don't feel that way. That's what I believe. Yeah. It, it's funny, Race, because if I hadn't worked for you, I would be sitting here rolling my eyes and shaking my head and waiting for you to stop talking. Um, but, you know, having experienced the way you do manage, and I think maybe, and you can elaborate on this a little bit, I, I think for me, that idea of proper management, which is that pyramid that you talked about, for me, it kind of goes back to my military background. And thinking about what makes a good NCO, you know, I mean, it's like a uh, non-commissioned officer for those that right. weren't in the military, sergeants, et cetera. Um, but, you know, what what makes a good NCO? That's one of those people that's going to put his troops before him. You know, he's going to make sure that they get to eat first, if they get their weapons first, that, you know, all of their needs are taken care of before he focuses on himself. And that, I, that's something that you do. And I wonder if it came from that same kind of background for you. I think it did. I mean, when we're obviously when you're talking about, you know, Navy, the chief. Chief Petty Officers are certainly, you know, they're they're leading men below them. And I can tell you having the right people leading me, it was always, what do you need? You know, it's always it's always like a you know how it is, it's very paternal in the military. You know, mm -hmm. it's the, the the men that are above you, they're not just above you in rank. And and certainly it can be a little bit abrupt at times and it can be a little bit harsher than the than I would say the real world can be at times. But sure. at the end of the day, it's still, you know, done with a lot of love and, and understanding that we're all kind of in this together we all have the shovels in our hand and i can say that i worked with a lot of people that you know out obviously served above me that weren't afraid afraid to grab a shovel it wasn't uh you guys go over there and shovel that dirt it was let's go over there and shovel that dirt yeah. he may have led he led us over to the dirt with the shovel <laughs> in his hand. he told us what we were shoveling and what we were doing because that's yeah. his job because he's the boss but he wasn't above do, doing it himself he was the guy leading it and that's the lead from the front mentality. I'm just a guy that believes that, you know, translating down into the business world, 
you know, I've, I've, I've been in a lot of dealerships and, you know, and unfortunately you have a lot of, you have a lot of people, you know, just to translate that military style of, 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 you know, of working with people and understanding that we're all pitching together. You know, there was times when, you know, I didn't stop talking until the person signed the paper and bought the car. Right. There was times I could have stopped. There's times when, but you know, you say to yourself, well, I already have made my number and you know, another number would be nice, but it's not the end of the world, but it might be, it might be the end of the world for a guy trying to hit a bonus. So Absolutely. yeah, I'm going to push harder to get that deal for him. And of course, if I have to pay him a bonus, I'm paying more money out of my money, right. which might, which <laughs> might not, which might not even serve my paycheck as good yeah. as it's going to serve his. It's going to hurt me, but I would rather help him and hurt myself and put him in a position to put a smile on his face for the work he's done. And that's what it's all about. It's about understanding we're all in this together because that's the guy who's going to stay an hour late when he has to. He's going to remember what you did, and he's going to pitch in to help you. And that's what creates good teams, and that's what creates the whole mentality. When they see the leaders truly lead by example and put themselves in a position where you know they make things better for the people that work, work with them. Yeah. I never use the term below them. That's not, that's not what it is. Work with them. I may tell people what they're selling and how they're selling it, but at the end of the day, they're doing the work. They'll be rewarded, and if they're not rewarded, I don't want to do it. I, I'm a guy who believes that everybody gets strong together. We, you know, it's the classic case. You know, we win together, we lose together. You know, and that and that's just how it works. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I guess I want to get into how you think the virus is being handled on the national level. Um, of course, every state is not handling things the same way. The federal government some days can handle one thing, you know, one day and a different way the next day. Um, how do you, what is your opinion overall? And you can talk about specific states if you want to, but what's your opinion overall of how the United States is combating COVID-19? Well, I, I, I will tell you, I, I think that, I think there's been an effort and you and I always have these talks and we have a blast. People that don't know me and Jason and how we interact, we have some of, some of the best debates and the best you know, back and forth, you know, and it's absolutely the most stimulating talks I have during my day, no matter how busy I am. Agreed. But I always look forward to Jason hitting me up with, hey, what do you think <laughs> of this? And then we just start a gigantic debate. But, and we're not always on the same page, but it's right. so funny how we all, kind of, we both have so many commonalities within our own opinions that kind of bring us back together. It's hilarious. It's almost like we're, we're finding the same ending, but we're just taking different ways we're getting there. Right. But and in, it's in, like in, in, in case of the COVID, I mean, I believe this is a serious illness. I, I think that, and, and I'm going to say this, I think that the American people are, we're in a position, and you and I have talked about running business and how the American, America is a business. Right. We are $23 trillion in debt. And I've mentioned that so many times that Absolutely. people don't understand it. I know if I have negative $23 in my checking account, if I go to buy groceries for 10 bucks, I can't even, my card won't work. Mm. So I know that we've had irresponsible completely irresponsible and, and, and just haphazard spending. Those parties equal, equal share, equal blame for this. They've taken the greatest country on earth that should be sitting on massive surpluses because of disciplined spending. And they have literally run this business, the, probably the worst of any way you could run a business, to have a $23 trillion debt. Right. So now you have people that really, in my opinion, need to be taken care of. This is this this disease is no fault of their own, sure. but we're talking about a disease. The, the flu kills 50, 15 to sixty thousand people a year in this country. A year, 
Right. 60,000 is the most the flu will kill. It probably averages about 35,000 a year, 35 to 40. Mm-hmm. This thing has killed with, with basically people quarantining, masking, gloving. Is it making a difference? I would hope it would be making some difference, but everybody's taking gigantic precautions in comparison to what they would take for the flu. And this thing just took out 56,000 people in April. So again, we cannot compare something that has a 30 times greater kill rate with no natural immunity to the, to the common flu. This is, this is a different animal. We lost 4,000 people, a little over 4,000 in March because it was coming into a fruition in March. Right. And then 56,000 in April and April just finished. So my feeling is, and here's what I believe. I believe that they're doing the best they can, but I also believe that you're, you're only going to be able to run a, run a business based on your capital reserve. And this country is broke. The ability that we have to print money only devalues our currency, and that's the only thing we can do to pay people now. We, we put $48 billion stimulus packages out there to businesses so they can pay people because the government can't. The government cannot pay people's unemployment well, any, for any length of time in this country because there is no money. You know, we are $23 trillion in debt. It's funny, and that's, that's one of the reasons that I always appreciate your perspective is because I feel like that's one of the things – you said devaluing the dollar, and I think that's one of the things that people really aren't paying attention to right now. I mean we could be in a situation at the end of this where we've got somewhere between 20 and 30 percent national unemployment. And the solution to that is to throw stimulus stimulus packages that are going to be somewhere between 10 and 20 percent of our GDP sure. at the problem. Well, it's like you already know. One, you're you're heading for a recession, and there's no depression. That you know, we may, yeah, we may head into a depression. It could be a deep depression. I don't think it will be. I think it'll be a depression, but not, you know, anywhere near like the the Great Depression. But it's like when you're when you're in a hole, you know, what stop digging? You know, yeah. like you know that with the unemployment, you know, with people struggling. You know, the stock market is going to get hammered. You know, I'm sorry, but it is. It's going to come back. And then I think, you know, once we realize how rough the economic situation is, it's going to nosedive again. Sure. And then you throw this huge stimulus on top of it. I mean, again, you you can't spend 10, 15, 20, 25 percent of your GDP, uh, uh, like you said, of money that you don't have. Sure. On a stimulus. I mean, it's like you're burying yourself. Yeah. And I, I, and I think also, Jason, that, you know, we're sit, when you're sitting on 22, 23 to $24 trillion deficits, you have no money. Roads, bridges, infrastructure, levees are breaking. Levees aren't getting fixed. They're just going to flood again. It's just an endless supply of, you know, it's an endless supply of issues and problems that we've seen the symptoms of being $23 trillion in debt. We've seen the symptomology of, of when you look around, you wonder why the hell this road isn't fixed and why these bridges are collapsing. And there's no money to fix them. Yeah. So the issues that you have now, now, COVID-19 comes along and puts people in a position where, and I'm going to tell you, you know, there's no real way to look at this thing, but a natural, a national tragedy. It's, it's a, it's a double-edged sword. Of course, you and I both are conspiracy guys to some degree. That's why we're having a podcast. Absolutely. (laughs) But but I'm going to tell you, you know, on the media side, you know, you have, you have the media ratcheting up this idea of rights grabs and, and, and it's, it's just one step of martial law, and it's, and it's a constitutional thing. You know, here's the thing, and it's forcing everybody to say, yeah, screw that. We want to go back to work. 
But the reason why they really want to go back to work and the reason why they're standing out there on picket lines with signs 10 feet, two feet from each other, spitting and frothing all over one another is because they're broke. It has nothing to do with human safety. It has nothing to do with safety or common sense or anything. The government is not getting unemployment to people fast enough because they don't have it. I've got people that I, we, we put on furlough, we've had to, that are, have waited five, six weeks for a single dime. And, and again, exactly. it's because they don't have the money. So the only thing they can do, rather than stand up there and say, guys, I just want to tell you, we're $23 trillion in debt because we overspent. We stepped way above our means. We've spent all of your money. We're in a big hole. We can't take care of you. So unfortunately, you're going to have to risk your life and go back to work. Because if anybody thinks that this thing, and I heard a model that cracked me up, and our president supported it, and I was just like, oh, my God, what did he say? But he said 74,000 is his new idea, that we're gonna, it's going to kill 74,000 people. Okay, so this thing just takes out 56,000 people in four weeks with 30% of the people staying at home and everybody wearing a mask. Now we're going to open up the restaurants, the movie theaters, the factories, get everybody back together, swap and spit and licking toilet seats, and, all of a sudden, <laughs> and we're going to have 74,000 only by the end of August. I mean, he's got to say that, Jason, because you know, he's got to get people comfortable going back to work. So he states that number, but that number means about as much as, you know, me saying I'm worth as much as Bill Gates. You know, mm -hmm. it doesn't mean a damn thing. It's a ir it's rash. It's crazy. It's all been wild shots in the dark. I mean, we started. Yeah, we're going to have we're going to have 75,000 in two weeks. Right. I mean, you know, it's not end of August. We're going to have. If, and here's what I'm thinking. And this is the sad thing. and I hope I'm wrong. So rather than stand up and admit to the American people that we're broken, they did this and they can't and the government can't take care of you all the money we put in, this is the greatest country on the face of the earth that in a time of crisis cannot take care of the people that have taken care of it. And, wow. and again, what we're saying is they won't stand up and say Republicans and Democrats, you know, I'm an equal opportunity hater, sure. but they won't stand up there and say, we blew your money at the racetrack. There's nothing left. Unfortunately, because of our, our irresponsibility, you have to put yourself at risk and go back to work in the factory. And I hope you don't get COVID-19. If you're young enough, maybe you won't die, but you might pass it to grandma and grandpa the next right. Sunday dinner, and maybe they'll be dead. So again, that's where we're at. I think this government, I think this country is going to reopen. I think they're going to. I think all these things about conspiracies and tyrannies and martial law has been designed to get the people on the side of going back to work because the government knows they can't pay them. So they've created this, and now the people are frothing at the mouth to get back to work. And then he throws some 74,000 number out there, which 14, it's like 10,000 more people in the next five months. Right. You know, and, and everyone's like, yeah, it's not that bad. Our president says 74,000. We're going to be fine. And yeah, it's a right, it's tyranny to keep us at home. So, of course, they rush back to work. But the real reason they're doing it is because they, the government can't take care of them and they know it. So they're going to rush back to work. They're going to get sick. It's going to keep spiking. Every, if I was COVID-19, I'd be sitting outside these houses of people that haven't been infected, looking at my chops saying, come on. <laughs> hey, your, hey, your daddy says come out and play, and what's right. going to happen? They're going to get sick, and it's going to be just in Maryland today. In Maryland, and this, the, little, the little state of Maryland is averaging about 700 to 800 new cases a day and 50 to 70 deaths a day. This is not the flu. But, of course, they have to market that as this is the flu. Oh, it's only the flu. Why do they say that? Very simple, because they want everybody to be comfortable going back to work. They want everybody fighting to go back to work. But you're fighting to put yourself at risk, and that's the sad thing. 
all because the government won't be honest and say, we screwed up. We can't take care of you. We should have been able to take care of you, but we're a bunch of irresponsible business morons. And now this is the position we're in. The greatest country in the face of, on the face of the earth, okay, should be able to take care of the people in time of need. And they absolutely can't. And you hit the nail on the head, Jason. If they think taking care of this country is printing more money to throw at people because they can't afford to pay unemployment, then we're headed for some dark, dark territory. Well, we're going to be in good shape in one case, though, because we won't have to try to get to the store as they're stocking toilet paper. We can just use what's in our wallets. I um, believe that. I, I would be, and this is why you're here. Um, I, I would be totally remiss if I didn't flip this coin over. Um, you know me. You know I'm a very strict constitutionalist. You yeah. know that my rights are very important to me. Um, you also, being a man who signed on that, it was actually a solid line. It wasn't a dotted line. But you signed that piece of paper that said you would protect and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, just like I did. Yep. That is kind of, that's my mantra, and that is my guiding philosophy in terms of how a government should work. The Constitution was constructed to limit what governments can do. Of course, they've walked all over that. And it, yeah. it's to to um, enumerate some of the, the rights that you know we as the people do have. I, I'll be perfectly honest with you. I'm pissed right now. You know, I, I don't think that the state of Maryland has the right to tell me that I have to stay at home or that I can't go to a certain kind of business, or if I'm a business owner, that I have to close my business. States aren't allowed to enact laws or executive orders or other provisions that conflict with the Constitution, and so many of the things that they're doing do. How do you feel about that? Yeah, I, I kind of feel, well, getting to the, I, I'm a constitutionalist as well. I'm a heavy constitutionalist as well. I will tell you that I think that it's that pyramid again, to some degree, when the people that you, know, you call the people in our government that are elected leaders, I use the word leader, if they're not following the principles of the Constitution in any way, shape, or form, what kind of pyramid do you have? You know, you have everybody supporting them. Right. We're, we believe in a Constitution. We believe in a rule of law, and we're supporting people that have no regard for that at all. That's the wrong, that's the wrong direction pyramid in my world. Right. Let me just say this. I think that it's kind of analogous to the helmet law. You know, you got a helmet on a motorcycle. I mean, nobody, it, it should be your right not to wear a helmet and have your head crack wide open all over the pavement. You have the right to say goodbye to your brain on a, on a, on a, on a motorcycle ride right. anytime you want because that's your right. But, but they make it a law to kind of protect you against yourself. This is a situation where I believe that if people – and this is what I believe, and I support you, Jason. If, if you – again, if somebody says, I'm going to work, you can't tell me I can't. On the, in those isolated situations, okay, given a choice between staying home and being safe and protected for your family, knowing the risk, knowing what, what this thing is and what it really is, and let's not minimize this. This happens once every 100 years. This is, a, this is the 100-year storm. It's happened basically ever since the beginning of time. It's been 100 years. Right. This is our 100-year storm. This is our, this is our, you know, this is our Waterloo. I mean, it is what it is. If, if you give people a choice, if, if somebody is hell-bent on putting themselves at risk, you know, the problem with that is, is that it infringes on the rights of others because of, this, of what this is. It is an, it's, it's, not even, it's not even analogous to the helmet thing, really, when I think about it, because this disease is, it can be an asymptomatic situation where 
you could catch you could catch it because you refuse to stay home. You could they say this is what we think you should do. He say no, I, you can't tell me to stay in the doors. I'm going to go out. You go out and you take no precautions. I'm not saying you would do that, but you right, take no precautions whatsoever. And you come home and you and and you have a a wife that has asthma or a wife that has COPD, and you're asymptomatic with a mild cold, and then she turns into the, a major COVID flare, and she dies in six weeks like they do. You know, that's a situation where, you know, your decision impacts others' rights to a level that could mean their death. I yeah. think that carries weight. I think that has more weight. But but I need to poke the bear a little bit. I mean, it's like there's there's all kinds of – there's probably millions of people in this country that have autoimmune disorders that if they go out in a regular year and get a cold or they go out in a regular year and get the flu, those people can die. They can. Is it my responsibility to stay home because they're sick? Or are they the ones that need to take care of themselves? I think that I think that if somebody has, uh, this is something that you could bring home. You could literally bring home that they can't help their autoimmune disease. Right. They can't. They can't help their their autoimmune disease. I mean, any more than anybody else can. But I think what happens is when somebody's given an opportunity to be able to help, not bring home something that's going to turn that autoimmune autoimmune disease into a quick and early death, I think that can, that has to have some weight. I think it has to be given some weight. The decisions that people make to not follow CDC guidelines, and I'm going to tell you, I think the CDC is fumbling their way through this too because, again, you know, the, the people that are running the CDC now, they weren't around during the Spanish flu. I mean, I mean, they – they they weren't around during the Spanish flu, so they don't they, they're not they don't have they, they don't there's no there's no veterans with regard to understanding how to deal with a problem like this. Absolutely true. So so they're so they're you know but I do believe that if somebody if if you know older people people with autoimmune disorders people with heart disease asthma diabetes things that you know they couldn't control maybe they could control. But the one thing that can be prevented is, and, 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 and again, even taking all the precautions doesn't even guarantee that it's preventable. Right. But even to limit, even to, to even 20%, to limit 20% of those people who should be quarantining for their own safety, not being exposed to somebody that just is kind of willy-nilly, just kind of throwing caution to the wind. The caution that person throws to the wind is, is going to impact somebody else's constitutional rights to life liberty in the pursuit of happiness because you don't got you don't got liberty in the pursuit of happiness without life so it it, it can directly impact and, and i just believe in my heart that if if the government i'm gonna go right back on government you'll like this you're gonna like what i spend this but if if the government hadn't spent like a bunch of drunken sailors in a brothel and ran the american company the american government business side with some level of of common sense, common decency, and, and, and normal, you know, normal level of intellect, there would be surpluses. The greatest nation on the face of God's earth should have massive surpluses to take care of their citizens in times of crisis. This country has proven, COVID-19 has exposed the underbelly of this country that we are not capable of doing that. Our numbers are a disgrace in the world. And the world is watching, and we look like a disaster. And the and reason I, why we look like a disaster is because we cannot, we cannot do the right things for the people. The people would stay home. Listen, if if people could get eighty percent of their pay for 
three months and flat and flatten this and flatten this disease to nothing. That would be that, in my opinion, would be a wonderful option. But that's not even on the table now, right. because of twenty. It's a twenty-four trillion dollar problem that eliminates that from being in the issue. And it didn't have to be that way. And it's Republicans, Democrats. It, this 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 national deficit has grown with every president, Republican or Democrat, Absolutely. every Congress, every Senate being either blue or red. It is a this this spending is like is like opioid addiction with these people. They can't not spend money, and in doing so, they put our entire future at risk. Your future, your children, my children, my grandchildren, your grandchildren. It's game over, bro. Well, it, gonna, it's funny, Rich. I know a, a lot of people haven't been in on our conversations, but I've known you for what, probably six, seven years, something like yeah. that. And we've discussed every topic that has ever come up in the history of the world. Yeah. And Every time I have come to you, hey, can you believe this thing they're doing? That's unconstitutional, bro. You know, they can't make us do this. They can't stop this. And what have you said every time? You've held up one finger. So, Jason, we're $23 trillion in debt, bro. Yeah. You know, and it, it's funny, and it, it's got to be a sense of vindication for you that, you know, obviously you don't want to see us struggle the way we are, but for finally 330 million people to be able to see the point that you have been making all along, you know, I yeah. mean, it, it's, it's crazy. Well, it's, it's actually in some respects, it's like the saddest day in my life. It is because it be, because it's, you know, you can't, you can't take a, you can't take an attaboy on this one. You can't take a, you know, a pat on the back. You can't take a, I told you so it's not even a, I told you so isn't even a word that comes out of my mouth in this situation because I'm so disheartened and crushed. And I knew you wouldn't say it. That's why I yeah, said it. Really. I mean, I, you know, because I'm so I know crushed. you're not the kind of person you know. who's going to say, hey, what, you know, the United States is broken. People are dying. I told you so. I just, I'm just at a point where I, I see, when I see people standing out on picket lines with signs saying, you can't, you know, this is tyranny. The government can't tell me this and that. I know what that is. Those are people that have been re basically revved up by the same people that stole their money. They said they, they basically told them they basically they've they've ratcheted this whole thing up because and you know how we feel about conspiracies, you and me. I mean, we know what the government does. There's nothing mm -hmm. in anybody's best interest they're going to ever do. Mm -hmm. But let's be let's be perfectly frank. You know, when somebody is standing out there knowing what this COVID-19 is, if you truly know what this thing is, you know, it's not you know, it's not the common cold. You know, it's going to kill. You know it can kill if it's not if it's not going to kill you it's going to kill people around you, you know it's it's um it's tragedy in a lot of respects because again this is this is just not the flu man I mean yeah. it's devastating and the reality of it is these people are standing outside with signs saying you know you can't you know you can't tell me what to do you can't tell me to stay in my house here's the thing I want to be able to tell people I want you to stay in your house I'm going to give you everything you need. To make to keep yourself safe as long as this takes, because by God, you're an American citizen, and I have to protect your right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and I will move heaven and earth to do that. I don't care if it's paying 80% of your wages for three months, four months. You're an American citizen. We don't want you to die. We care about you as a human being. You're a creature of God, and here's your money. Stay in the house, please. I'm begging you. And so, ladies and gentlemen, that's going to do it for another episode of the Treehouse of Liberty podcast. I certainly appreciate you being with me today, and I have to apologize to Rich. Um, when he and I get together and we're talking about these topics, it seems like we could go for a week, you know, just nonstop, no sleep. 
just going through 12 pack after 12 pack, you know, discussing things into the ground um, and still wanting to talk to each other more because even though we do have some differences, um, you know, that the fundamental truths remain the same for both of us, that the Constitution is the most important thing that this country is founded on, you know, that we are both still, I think, willing to give our lives in its defense and proudly do so. Um, but then also realize that there are other issues and other uh, causes for concern that are also very legitimate. Um, and as Rich pointed out, you know, it, it's, it's disgusting that we find ourselves in a $23 trillion hole. I mean, that's just an incomprehensible amount of money. Um, I, I, can't even, I can't even begin to think of it. I can't begin to picture it. Um, but that's the hole that we're in. And now all of a sudden, you know, during this worldwide pandemic and national crisis, when we would expect that the United States would step up and lead like we always have, we don't have the resources to help ourselves, let alone anyone else. Um, and it's a trying time, a difficult time. Um, I think Rich would tell you the same thing. I mean, we're Americans. We, we just get through it. We just do. You know, no matter what the challenge has been from... You know, the, the Revolutionary War where we fought the world's only superpower at the time for a country. You know, to World War II where we stopped Adolf Hitler from taking over the entire planet and continuing to murder millions of people. You know, to the Gulf Wars, to 9-11. You know, it just seems like, and I apologize, I don't intend to leave any conflict out. Um, you know, I, I certainly, it, it, my life is in debt to the men and women that have served us so admirably in every conflict and every war that the United States has participated in. Um, but it's just, you know, you, you've got to hold on to that hope. You know, saying I'm an American has to still mean something. You know, we've, we've been able to hang our hats on that for our entire existence. And I hope that we'll be able to do that again. You know, no matter what happens, you know, no matter what, what this world becomes, I, I want being able to say, hey, I'm an American, to mean something. And regardless of what your feelings are on this crisis, how we're dealing with it, um, what will happen in the end, you know, I know it's important to each of you that the words, I am an American, remain critically important to all of us. Uh, Rich Rowland, thank you so much. I, I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate your perspective, um, how you have helped me to learn and grow as a person, um, both professionally and, um, you know, the things that I like to study. Um, you've been more of an influence on me than I think you understand. Uh, and I certainly do appreciate that. Like I said, my friend, you know, we don't always agree on everything. And I, I like it when we don't. Because one of the things that I try to do every day is to talk to somebody more intelligent than I am that disagrees with me. You know, I, I think that's the, one of the best ways that I can learn and grow and understand different perspectives. Um, so, Rich, again, thank you very, very much. I'm very grateful for uh, you coming on the show and giving such a, a great and unique perspective to all of this. So, again, ladies and gentlemen, that will do it for this week's episode. You know I like your feedback. Please contact me anytime. There's a couple of ways that you can do that. I am on Twitter at Treehouse1776, at Treehouse1776. It is also the Treehouse of Liberty podcast on Facebook, Treehouse of Liberty podcast, or you can send me an email. 
My personal email account is JDF as in Frank, O-R-N as in Nancy, W-A-L-T as in Tom, JDFornwalt at gmail.com. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for your time and attention. Rich, thank you again very much for being here. I hope to hear from you all. Tell me about the things that you want to hear about. And if you want to get your voice out there, let me know that as well. I would love to have you come on the show and give you the opportunity to do that. I will talk to you next week. Until then, stay safe, stay healthy, and take care.